Get our scripture reading, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and our sermon passage, 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. God is speaking to you. So please give your full attention to God's word. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 1 to 11. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead. And the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are grateful to you. You've led us through such a large portion of your word. You've brought us through 1 Samuel. You've brought us into 2 Samuel. You're teaching us, Lord, 
about the history of your people, but more importantly, O Lord, you are teaching us the history of your saving work, your mighty deeds. And so we pray that you would teach us about you from this passage, from these passages today. We pray that you would be exalted, glorified through the preaching of the word. That you would build up your saints, your people, your children. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Now in the first chapter of 2 Samuel, David, you remember, learned that Saul, king of Israel, and his son, Jonathan, as well as the other sons of Saul, were killed in the battle with the Philistines. As we saw last week, David found this out from an Amalekite messenger who had been living within Israel his whole life, but who embellished the story, probably an eyewitness to what happened, but when he came to David, he added some things to it in the hope of ingratiating himself with the presumed next king. Well, this Amalekite messenger underestimated David's loyalty to the Lord and to the Lord's anointed. He thought that David would commend him for helping end Saul's life, as he had told David. And his lies to David resulted in the loss of his own life. Now, the death of Saul resulted in one sense, quite naturally, in a power vacuum. David's anointing by Samuel had not been done publicly. It's true that many people knew that David was the anointed king of Israel, and yet not everyone knew that. So what is a no-brainer to us that David would become king of all Israel, all Judah, now that Saul is dead, is far from a foregone conclusion. David has got to navigate uncharted waters here, and his first impulse, very wisely, is to seek the counsel of the Lord. Well, David also finds out about the faithfulness to Saul of the people of Jabesh-Gilead, and he sends a message to them. We also see in this passage that those who opposed David and the Lord set up a rival king in Israel. This passage teaches us, and I want you to, to remember this as we work our way through it, it teaches us that we ought to remind ourselves of God's goodness to us and to tell others about his steadfast love and mercy. Again, we ought to remind ourselves of God's goodness to us and tell others about his steadfast love and mercy. The sermon is divided into three parts. The first part, the king of Judah. The second, words of encouragement. And the third, seeds of discord. Again, the first part, king of Judah. The second, words of encouragement. And third, seeds of discord. So let's look at the first part of the sermon, King of Judah. After David's lament in the first chapter, after the Amalekite messenger had received his due, verse 1 of chapter 2 tells us that David inquired of the Lord, of Yahweh. He asked, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? Now, it's true, we don't know how much time had gone past, had, had expired between when David offered up his lament and when he inquired of the Lord whether to go up to Judah, to one of the cities. And yet we do know that the city that they had inhabited was, had been burned to the ground. And that the only possessions that they had were those that the Amalekites had taken from the city and that they had taken back. He knew that his reception in the towns of Judah would be positive. He was a Judahite himself. But first he asked the Lord... 
Now, verse 1 doesn't say how, but we can assume that it was either the Urim or the Thummim or uh, Abiathar, the, the high priest, through whom David made his inquiry. Regardless of how he made the inquiry, the Lord responded simply with, Go up. And then David asked to which city he ought to go. And the Lord told him to go to Hebron. And then verse 2 tells us that David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And verse 3 adds that David brought his men and all of their wives, children, and members of their household. But David's 600 men plus their households would have put the numbers, their numbers into the thousands who departed Ziklag and made their way to Hebron. And verse 3 says that they lived in the towns of Hebron, which probably meant the cities surrounding Hebron, because as one commentator put it, Hebron alone could not have absorbed the sudden arrival of thousands of people. Now, Hebron was about 25 to 30 miles northeast of Ziklag. It was about 15 miles south of Bethlehem, about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. It was very much back in familiar territory for David and his men. And after David and all of his people had taken up residence and were living in the towns around Hebron, verse 4 says that the men of Judah came, and they were, there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Again, we don't know how much time elapsed between when David and his people arrived in the towns surrounding Hebron and when these men came. But needless to say, regardless of how long it was, this was the culmination of years of waiting. David is finally, after having been uh, anointed to be king back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, he is finally ascending the throne. But the description of David's enthronement only gets half of a verse in our passage. It's mentioned almost in passing. Now that's partly because we all knew that it was going to happen eventually. But also because it was somewhat anticlimactic in comparison to David's anointing by Samuel at the direction of the Lord in 1 Samuel 16. David's anointing by the men of Judah, in the words of one commentator, was a political ratification of what has already been laid down when Samuel found David in Bethlehem and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. They weren't trying to redo what Samuel had done. They weren't trying to undo what Samuel had done. They were simply ratifying what Samuel had done all those years before. But this is also somewhat anticlimactic, perhaps why it receives only half of a verse in its description, because David was anointed king of only part of the kingdom. Now David understands that the northern tribes of Israel might well remain loyal to the household of their son Saul. And that's what makes what he does in the next few verses so important. And that takes us to the next section of our sermon, Words of Encouragement. In the second half of verse 4, they, this is the men of Judah, they told David that it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul. Now you remember that Jabesh-Gilead was a city to the north and the east of Hebron. It was north of the Dead Sea. It was east of the Jordan River in East Manasseh. It's very much a part of Israel and the other northern tribes. Now, a cynical reader might, might read this and see it only as a diplomatic ploy by David, as a veiled attempt to build an alliance with the people in, in a city in a northern tribe. It doesn't mean that it wasn't at least partly that, but it seems that there's more to it. Because if it was merely a diplomatic overture, it was merely a dip diplomatic effort on David's part, what is the payoff? What's the diplomatic return on investment? David and his people never hear a word in response 
to what David sends to the men of Jabesh Gilead. They never hear back. In fact, the city is only mentioned one more time in 2 Samuel 21, and that's in reference to David going there to retrieve the bones of Saul and Jonathan for them to be buried in the land of Benjamin. Now, the narrator made choices about what he did and what he did not include in the book. Why did he include the details of a message to a group of people if it were a diplomatic overture to which they never responded? Why did he do that? Why is it, why is it included? If David were acting purely as a politician on a diplomatic mission, then the sending of this letter was a failure and would have been embarrassing to David for being included in this historical account. And so it seems to me that what appears to be a failed attempt at diplomacy was included in the history of King David because it showcases the depths of his theology, his true love for Saul, and his compassion for those who knew and loved Saul. The messengers David sent to Jabesh Gilead were to tell the people there, may you be blessed by Yahweh because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. You remember that the, the men of Jabesh Gilead, they had not forgotten what Saul had done for them in rescuing them from the Ammonites. And so they did what they had to do to honor Saul's memory and consecrate his body. And as we saw in 1 Samuel 31, at great risk to themselves, all of the valiant men of Jabesh Gilead arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And though he doesn't mention this in his message to the men of Jabesh Gilead, David is as indebted to them for their treatment of Jonathan as he is for their treatment of Saul. They have shown hesed, Loyalty, steadfast love to Saul and his sons. And David expresses his desire for Yahweh to bless them. He desires for the Lord to show steadfast love and faithfulness to these people of Jabesh Gilead. They have proven that they understand what loyalty, steadfast love, faithfulness truly are. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 gives us an extravagant picture of what steadfast love looks like. We read there, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It isn't arrogant or rude. Love doesn't insist upon its own way. It isn't irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. It never fails. Now, just as they are they remembered Saul, David is reminding them that Yahweh is a God who remembers. He remembers the promises that he made to his people. He remembers his covenant that he has made with his people. There are times when God becomes angry at the sins of his people and he hides his face from us, as Isaiah 54 says, but it's just for a moment. His love and his compassion for his people are everlasting. Now, the second half of David's message is his promise that he will do good to them because of their love and faithfulness to Saul. He's saying there in verse 6, if you ever need anything, anything at all, don't hesitate to ask me. And in verse 7, he says that this isn't some empty promise. He has been anointed king over the house of Judah. He wants them to be strong and valiant despite the death of their king, their lord, this one that they were so loyal to. But if they ever need any aid, he has an army at his disposal. And David means it. So sure, certainly there might have been an element of diplomacy 
of reaching out as to why David did this, why he sent this message. But that doesn't explain why the the narrator included it in this history. I think we can come to this conclusion that he did so because he wanted to show David's chesed to Saul. David's theological understanding of the Lord. And David's loyalty to the people who supported Saul and cared for him. That takes us to the third part of the sermon, Seeds of Discord. It's difficult to know the exact timing of David becoming king of Judah and what happens in verses 8 to 11, the chronology here. What we read is that Ishbosheth, whom Abner sets up as king of the northern tribes, reigned for two years, but that David reigned in Judah for seven and a half years. And so it's a little bit difficult to understand exactly how these things coincided. It's possible that David reigned for five and a half years before Ishbosheth became king of Israel. The sandwiching together of our, in our passage of David's and Ishbosheth's ascensions to their respective thrones makes it seem as if they happened at roughly the same time. But whenever it happened, verses 8 and 9 make it clear that it was Abner, the commander of Saul's army, who made it happen. We read there that he took Ishbosheth, one of Saul's sons, over to Mahanaim and made him king. And verse 9 says that he was made king over Gilead, the Asherites, Jezreel, and Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Now it's very likely that this was grandiose talk. It's doubtful that he was wholly king over all of those places. Not all of those cities, not all of those regions would have supported Saul's son to the exclusion of David. Now what is significant about the places mentioned is Mahanaim, which was very close to Jabesh Gilead. And this is a subtle indicator of the battles that are going to take place between these two kingdoms. David reaches out to Jabesh Gilead. He wants to let them know that if they ever need him, he's there for them. But who's next door? The new king of Israel. It's reminiscent of Martin Luther's quote that where God builds a church, the devil builds a chapel. Those who stand against the Lord will always offer something to compete for the loyalty of God's people. If you look at the book of Revelation, it's very much about the counterfeit church that has been set up in order to try to destroy the true church. It's almost as if Satan says, God's going to build a kingdom with David, but I'm going to, build, uh, going to establish his, uh, my own kingdom with none other than Saul's son. And so what we have here is an instance of the real kingdom versus the counterfeit kingdom. For God's kingdom, he chose David, a man after his own heart. He anointed him to be king. And a plurality of men from Judah recognized David's anointing and ratified it. For the counterfeit kingdom, Abner alone picked Ishbosheth and set him up as king in opposition to David. Ishbosheth was merely a puppet. Ishbosheth's reign would be brief, two years, and it would end in a bloody death. David's reign wasn't devoid of controversy. We'll obviously go through that over the next many months. But he reigned for, for 40 years, seven and a half years over Judah, and then 33 years over a united Israel. And those four decades reigning as king were only possible because of the steadfast love of the Lord. We know this. We're going to see this. David, in many ways, was no better than Saul. In many ways, he was no different than Saul. 
the power that he had he had as king over Israel, it did tend to toward corruption. But the biggest difference between the two men had nothing to do with David. God had set his love upon David. God chose David to be king and placed his favor upon David. Though there were many instances in which David was not faithful to God, God was always faithful to his anointed. God always kept his covenant with David. Abner, who sets up Ishbosheth as king over Israel, in the very next chapter defects to David's camp. Abner is the complete opposite of the steadfast love of the Lord. Whatever Abner's motives were in defecting, and they're debatable, Abner showed little, if any, steadfast love, any loyalty to Ishbosheth. But the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is the faithfulness of the Lord, Lamentations 3 22 and 23. And nowhere can we see this, brothers and sisters. Then in the coming of the second David, in the coming of David's son, in the coming of the son who was greater than David, the Lord Jesus Christ. If 1 Corinthians 13 gives us such an elaborate and beautiful picture of love, then the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ shows us perfectly what steadfast love, what hesed, what covenant faithfulness is. The Lord sent His Son, Christ Jesus. Not because you and I are so faithful that Jesus Christ was our reward for our faithfulness, but precisely because we are not faithful. We don't understand covenant love. We don't keep covenant. But the Lord does. And Jesus Christ, King Jesus, kept the covenant for you and me. He rescued us, and He remembers us. And it's our duty to remind ourselves of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us and to encourage others, letting them know about the steadfast love of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank You that Your steadfast love never ceases. There's no ending point to your mercy. We thank you that even when you come to judge the living and the dead, you come not in judgment for your children, but in mercy. It will be for us a day of mercy. We are grateful to you, O Lord, for your steadfast love. We pray, O Lord, that we would sing of it that we would revel in it, that we would glorify you because of it, that we would exalt you, and that the joy that we derive from your steadfast love would be profound, would be deep, would be lasting. We thank you, O Lord, and we pray this all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.